This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Big day at the Public Order Emergencies Commission today as the hearings will hear from Prime Minister Trudeau. What can we expect? What's been going on there this week? David Aiken joins us now, our Global National Chief Correspondent. Good morning, David. Good morning. It's not just this week, six weeks it's been going on this commission, 70 witnesses, and this is the last one, the PM himself. And I've been watching most of it. It's my job. I get paid to do it. But you know what? Because I'm a political geek, it has been really fascinating because the commission has been able to get right inside the room with detailed text messages between ministers, detailed notes at first ministers' meetings, cabinet meetings, what the police were saying, some secret stuff, intelligence going around. There's been some stuff that's been blacked out, and there's been some arguments about what's been blacked out, but governments in Ottawa and around the country, and uh, and that's what's going to happen today. Is uh, the, 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 it's, it's all lawyers from a whole bunch of people questioning the PM, and they'll want to get sort of inside the prime minister's head at the time on February the 14th last year or this year when he invoked the Emergencies Act. We heard testimony yesterday from his chief of staff that it was him at the end of the day. It was his call. And um, and he, the buck stops with the PM and, and he's going to be asked, who did you talk to? What advice did you get? I, I bet we're going to hear about conversations he had with, for example, U.S. President Joe Biden. Uh, they talked at the time about the harm that was happening to cross-border trade. So uh, it should be a fascinating day. And if you got time to tune in, 9.30 Eastern is when it starts, and it probably will go till 4 or 5 in the afternoon. Wow. Okay, so what have you learned in watching this? Like, What kind of pressures were on the government and the prime minister in particular from all these other places about ending this convoy? So the it's been interesting to sort of get a sense that it wasn't so much the Ottawa protests. Certainly, the Ottawa protests were they were of course right in front of the uh, the federal cabinet, and they were they were an issue. There was very much concerns about literal threats to democratic institutions. I mean, Parliament Hill is where they were camped out for a month. But we're hearing a lot more emphasis, and we certainly heard this yesterday when the Deputy Prime Minister, Christopher Freeland, testified about the concern about irreparable economic harm. And I mentioned getting inside, you know, places we don't normally get inside and getting into rooms. We had detailed notes yesterday of a phone call that Christopher Freeland had in Feb the, the Sunday before the Emergencies Act was invoked. This phone call, she got all the, the CEOs of all the banks on the line. And the names of each CEO's blanked out, but detailed things about what they they said they were quite candid. One CEO had just come back from the U.S. and told Freeland that the Canada was seen as a joke to people in the U.S. because we couldn't manage these blockades. Another uh, bank CEO said he'd been trying to get this American to invest in Canada, and the American investor told this CEO, said, I am not putting, quote, another red cent in your banana republic of a country. Um, and Freeland heard that kind of stuff, and it alarmed her. We had detailed meeting notes and text messages with, you know, senior economic advisors 
to Joe Biden. Also about how, you know, all these car plants in the northeastern United States are about to shut down. So so we really got a, a, a much better sense, I think, of how the people who invoked the Emergencies Act, the prime minister and cabinet, how concerned they were that we were uh, on the road to really, to basically blowing up NAFTA. You know, wow. Freeland, Freeland saved NAFTA from Donald Trump, and she was about to lose it to Canadian protesters, essentially. That's, this is like fascinating stuff. So then what happens with all this testimony then, David? So there's a guy named Paul Rouleau. He's a retired Ontario court justice, and he is the commissioner, one of the most patient guys I've ever seen. He's been the judge overseeing this commission for six weeks, and they've been taking testimony from most days from 9.30 till 7, 8 o'clock at night, 70-odd witnesses so far. Uh, police, uh, protesters themselves, some of the protesters like Tamara Leach and Chris Barber, they got on the stand. So Rouleau's got all this, and then he's got thousands of pages of documents. Some of the documents are just... You know, pages, a few pages of text messages. But he's got to sift through all of this, and he's got to provide a report to Parliament by February. Now, one of the things he's going to be asked is, okay, was the government justified in invoking the Emergency Act? A lot of people say it wasn't necessary. A lot of people who happen to be uh, police officers, the OPP, have testified they didn't think it was necessary. The Ottawa police said, well, it helped a bit. The RCMP said it helped, but we, we probably could have cleared it. Anyway... Rouleau's got to decide if it was necessary. I don't know if he's going to change a lot of people's minds. I think most people have already come to a conclusion, and there's some polls out today that I think somewhere around 80% of Canadians agreed with the invoking of the Emergencies Act. It splits on partisan levels from liberals to conservatives to Democrats. But Rouleau will also want to say, okay, what have we learned about the kind of threats that we're seeing in an age of online social campaigns that often involve misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories. The Emergencies Act was written in an era where none of that existed. And is it the right tool to handle some of the new kinds of threats that we might see to our economy or to our government or or and adjust and protect um, our security and yet make sure people have all those protections to protest peacefully and safe, uh, safely when they don't like a particular government's policy. Some real important stuff. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating. David, thank you so much. Hey, no problem, Zimmy. Cheers. That's David Aiken, our Global National Chief Correspondent, talking about what is happening in Ottawa. So Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is set to appear this morning at that public inquiry that is probing the use of the emergency powers. Now, this is happening this morning, so actually imminently. We'll keep you updated on that. Keep it tuned in right here for the very latest. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This is Mornings with Simi. Did you know that there are new rules designed to curb flipping and speculation on the housing market that are coming into effect on January 1st? But it sounds like Canada Revenue Agency is already gearing up for this. So let's find out what's going on. Joining us now is Jamie Gollenbeck, who's a Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning at CIBC Private Wealth Management. Good morning, Jamie. Good morning. First off, can you explain these new rules to us? What are they? Well, starting Jan 1st, 2023, the government is introducing legislation that will be effective on that date 
for anyone who flips a piece of residential real estate in under 12 months. So basically, what has been happening over the last number of years is with the increase in housing prices, uh, there are many people that have been in the business of buying a home. They actually do move into the home with their family. They renovate it, they fix it up, and they put it on the market, and they basically flip it uh, within 12 months. And the government uh, is not happy about this because they say, yes, they are living there, but they're claiming the principal residence exemption, basically exempting that entire profit uh, from flipping from tax. And the government is saying, no, 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 you guys are actually in the business of flipping homes. In other words, this is a full-time job. So notwithstanding that you're living there, uh, you're in the business of flipping, and they have been successful in the courts um, to basically, uh, in some cases, tax people as 100% business income. The new legislation will make it clear. They won't even have to go to court. If you've sold a home within 12 months, you're going to be taxable at 100% with certain limited exceptions. Okay, so that's just going to apply across the board. So is Canada Revenue Agency already a, a bit aggressive on this? Well, I don't know if aggressive is the right word, but they're looking at it. I mean, in the last five years or so, you had to obligation to report the disposition of a principal residence on your tax rent. So it's now on the radar every time someone sells a principal residence and claims the exemption, whereas prior to that, you didn't even have to report it. So the government is looking at it more, and now we're seeing more and more cases, including that recent case, um, which I just wrote about, um, where Canada Revenue Entry is going in and looking at the duration and saying, oh, you bought this here, you sold it you know, in a very short period of time for a substantial profit, maybe you're actually in the business of renovating and therefore you should pay tax on that gain as opposed to claiming a principal residence exemption. Okay, so people, do you think this is going to be a big change for people? Have you had anybody asking you questions about it? Yeah, we've got a lot of questions about it. Again, there are many people in the, uh, I don't know if I'd call it the flipping business, but certainly in the home renovation business. So basically, uh, they move into a home that needs a lot of work, um, and that is their day job. So the kids are in school. They're legitimately living there. There's no issue. Uh, but every time they wake up in the morning, they go to work on their own house, and they renovate. They do the kitchen. They change the floors. You know, nothing wrong with that. Um, but they do this multiple times over a period of time. And in fact, in reality, they're probably in the business of actually uh, renovations and home building as opposed to just living there and it's convenient and you move a home every year. So the government is looking at it. I think people need to be aware of that. We are getting questions about it. That being said, the good news is there are some very broad exceptions. So, for example, if there's been a death in the family, if there's a new addition to the family, if there's divorce or separation, if you get a disability, if you have to relocate for a job, those are all valid reasons uh, for moving within a year and the rules won't apply. But other situations would be caught, and I just tell people to watch out. Okay, so then what, what do they need to do then? So then do you stay more than 12 months? Well, again, it's still going to be subject to a question of fact. So even staying 12 months in one day uh, is not necessarily uh, you're home free because the government will look at all the facts and circumstances and say, look, is this your main job? Are you in the business of flipping? They can still tax you. What this one-year rule is designed to do is basically – eliminate the need for the government to go out and audit and take people to court for any time under than one year. It's just an automatic, if you did it less than a year, you're going to pay tax, period. Um, obviously, if you're still in that business, even if you hold it for more than a year, uh, you still have a risk of being taxed as business income simply because this is a business for you. Uh, it's not just a principal residence. Right. Now, this is in the midst of the fact, Jamie, that the real estate market is kind of already shifting, isn't it, because of high interest rates? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we've obviously seen prices, certainly in some of the major markets, Toronto and Vancouver, come down a little bit from the highs. Um, so absolutely, um, maybe this is an opportunity for some people to buy in uh, when they otherwise uh, would not have. And, and so this comes really as a warning that even if you're buying in at a lower price, uh, if this is uh, a project for you that you plan to flip, you know, even in a year or less or certainly more than that, you could be subject to these rules. Okay, that, I guess that's something people need to know because, as you point out, a lot of people have probably been doing this as a regular thing over the years. That's going to have to change, isn't it? Absolutely. So, again, the government's always been attacking these from time to time, you know, since you had to report the principal residence exemption uh, claim on your tax return. Again, that's relatively new. That's since 2016, right? So before that, the government didn't even know if you sold a principal residence. They would never find out about it. Uh, now they are actually told by law you must report it if you want to claim the exemption. So now they are aware. They're on the radar screen. And if they see a multiple claims of principal residence, like every year, you shouldn't be selling your principal residence every year. That's a red flag. And if you do that on your return, you're probably going to get audited. And certainly if it's been under a year starting next year, you're going to get caught uh, unless you have a valid reason for doing so. Mm, Ouch. All right. Thank you so much for that, Jamie. My pleasure. It's Jamie Gollenbeck, the Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning at CIBC Private Wealth Management, talking about these new rules, the anti-flipping rules, anti-speculation rules coming into effect January 1st that people definitely need to be on the lookout for if that's something that you've been doing. And how common is that, especially around this market where it feels like everybody is somehow involved in real estate, whether it's renovating, construction, buying, selling, you name it, these rules are definitely going to uh, cause people to make some changes. This is Mornings with Simi. Some people might be shopping from home looking for those online deals today, but an awful lot of people are expected to return to actual physical shopping for this Black Friday. So let's find out how it's going out there. We know that RCMP and others have warned us that the area around YVR and MacArthur Glen, the mall out there, the outlet mall, is going to be incredibly busy today. So watch out for that. And that is where we find Emily Lazatin, our Global News CKNW reporter this morning. Hi, Emily. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. More importantly, how are you? What's it like out there? Okay, so it's it's not bad. Now, mind you, I've been here since 6 a.m., and nobody's going to be here that early except traffic control setting up for the day to set themselves up. But um, in the last, I'd say, 20 minutes or so, because stores open here around, uh, they open at 3, they open at 8 a.m. Um, I have seen a slow influx of people. You know, I'm asking them, are you an employee? Are you shopping? And they're starting to get in line to the big box. So there's some big brand names here that are quite popular. So they're heading over in that direction. Nothing too crazy yet, but I definitely in the last 10 minutes have seen uh, quite a difference in the foot and car traffic coming in. So it's going to be it's going to be a messy one. And we know that in years past, uh, it's caused a big backlog so, and traffic jams, especially because it's right near YVR Airport. So people are being warned to take the Canada line as much as possible or give yourself a plenty, like extra time before you head to the airport today. Okay, yeah, let's talk about that. What kind of yeah. traffic control are they setting up there so what, to make sure things keep moving along? Well, they said that there would be extra traffic control and even RCMP officers on hand in the parking lot here at MacArthur Glen, but also um, at uh, the airport at YVR. Uh, I'd imagine it is to, uh, we've seen before, I don't know if you remember, at Swanson Mills, I think it was a year or two ago, where people didn't even know what direction they were going in. Yes. Because it was just 
so packed. So we spoke to a couple uh, traffic controllers this morning, and they said they're really just trying to make sure the flow of traffic goes as smooth as possible, and nobody is confused as to which direction to go to so that nobody is stuck uh, in a gridlock. And we know it's going to be busy already. So um, it's going to especially be busy today from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m., but also, listen to me, I mean, Black Friday is morphed into this sort of week-long event now. You know, there's Cyber Monday, True. and it usually ends up being a week-long. But this weekend, uh, people are being warned, um, especially today, so 8 a.m. to 10 p.m., and from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. tomorrow as well. Okay, um, and do you get the sense, Emily, that people know what they're going for? Like, I feel like people, they're going to go directly to the <laughs> thing that they are coveting. They're going to go to, like, a certain place to get what they want. Absolutely. And uh, where I'm doing the TV hits this morning, we're under just the entrance cover. Um, there's this long walkway here. And I every so often I'll see a group of, of people and I'll be like, hey, where, where are you heading? And they know they are. They're exactly. Just, they're <laughs> gunning to that store. So I mean, like there's like there's no tomorrow. We're getting in line. <laughs> we want to get there first and we want to get the hell out of here. But we know it's going to be so messy. And add to that the rain. You can just only imagine what it's going to be like today. Oh, I can imagine. Okay, so people are committed, right? If they think they're getting a deal, they're going to go, which also leads me to a very important question here, Emily. Are you going to do any Black Friday shopping while you're there? Okay, so it's not a secret anymore because I'm laughing about it between my camera guy and I. So my last hit for TV is at 8 a.m. And I was planning to, you know, get my get my uh, my streeters ready and get all the footage that I needed into get on out of here my girlfriend texted me this morning she's she said just so you know so-and-so store has dismount off so i have a 20 minute window between my last <laughs> and, this, and when my producer calls me to plan our day for you right so in that 20 minute window i am going to beeline to this oh, one store. so the answer to that to me is yes but i have mm-hmm. 20 minutes I love that you're planning that out. Also, even if your producer calls you, Emily, you can just say you're doing research. This is important yeah. research for the story today, which you well, you really got the tough assignment. So good luck yeah. today. Yeah. And you know what? I can explain what it's like being in line. Maybe that's part of it. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Your firsthand experience. We love the firsthand experience. <laughs> Emily, well, thank right. you. Out there, be careful and, you know, pack your patience today as well. We will. Thank you for that, Emily. This morning, we'll get a better idea of what BC's fiscal performance is like when the finance minister provides an update on that coming at about oh, 9 o'clock. So we'll have the latest for you. But also, what can we expect? What is the opposition expecting to hear? Joining us now is Peter Millibar, BC Liberal MLA and official critic for finance. Thank you so much for being here. You bet. Thanks for having me on. What do you think we're going to hear this morning? Well, it, it'll probably, uh, expectations are that it'll show that we're still in surplus and, and uh, probably not a huge surprise given the padding uh, of some of the estimates, both on the expense as well as the, the revenue side that we saw in the, in the last budget. So I think that's problematic in itself uh, when you see such a wild swing uh, year over year. Uh, the same thing happened last year in terms of uh, what the government's actually truly estimating. Um, you know, I think people should have a, a more accurate picture as uh, as the budget gets presented. Do you feel like, what do you think is BC's financial position right now? How are we doing? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, by all accounts, we're, we're fairly strong. Uh, not really because you can point to anything the government's been doing, frankly. Uh, when you talk to various sectors, permitting is uh, all but non-existent right now. 
uh, huge headwinds in the pulp and, and the forestry sector. Um, you know, we, we just had the business report there where people are cautioning, economists are cautioning globally because of a slowdown in, in housing starts and things of that nature. So I think we have some significant challenges ahead and, and it does not seem to be uh, uh, being recognized yet by this government. Now, what do, when you look at those challenges and which ones do you keep an eye on yourself, what are you concerned about? Well, I'm really concerned, and, and when you look at the, one of the, the recent Auditor General reports that came out, um, you know, both um, how some of the budgeting is being done is very problematic for the Auditor General. Um, but uh, more importantly, I think uh, when he noticed that uh, and points out that the government is now collecting over $12 billion with a B dollars in taxation, and that's coming directly from uh, corporate as well as uh, personal income taxes, uh, there is a ceiling when we're talking about record um, inflation inflation and unaffordability, uh, people's ability to keep just continually having their taxes hiked uh, to cover off the wish list of government uh, hits a breaking point, and I think we're, we're fast approaching that. Yeah, is there an area then that you think needs more investment, or do you think it's, t- it's time to maybe scale a few things back? Well, I, I think the biggest uh, problem underlying all of uh, these announcements and the latest announcements of spending, and, and uh, be it healthcare, be it uh, crime and safety, uh, you name it, uh, housing, uh, there, there never seems to be a, an accountability uh, piece built in for the government in terms of them uh, benchmarking what would be considered a success or not of the program, what is the outcome they're actually striving for. And so we need to get away from this uh, mindset of the current government where making a large spending amounts equates to uh, accomplishing something. What we really need to see is, um, you know, say with the, with the latest agreement with the doctors, uh, it, what is the goal? After five years, uh, have only half a million people in BC without a family doctor instead of the current million people without a, a family doctor. Uh, those are the types of things we need to start to be able to track as a, as a uh, population to say to the government, you know what, okay, you're, you're actually achieving some success or you're not. And, and you think of the back drop of the downtown east side the premier has now said he's going to um you know snap his fingers and suddenly make it uh, better uh, that's gonna if you think of the resources already getting pumped into that area uh you know what what is actually going to be tangible success uh, and how much money is uh, the premier thinking about so given that we expect to hear that this is going to be good things and do you think that we're going to get more of these announcements we've had what eight days of big announcements from this government uh with the fiscal update being what it is do you think well there's more of that coming yeah it's a weird energy over in victoria right now in terms of us trying to figure out what exactly is happening i mean if you look at the the policing announcement um you know first off where are those officers coming from have they already predetermined um, what their opinion on the Surrey transition is going to be, and they're just looking to to use the Surrey municipal RCMP officers to fill those uh, empty provincial spaces. Um, but a lot of those uh, announcements, um, you know, quite a few of them are actually for 2024, 2025. Um, you know, the housing bill that was introduced for supply, the minister said that won't be for uh, until 2024, 2025, when they expect to see some implementation and, and actual action taken on it. Um, so, I mean, the, the policing was the same. So that is the concern right now, as we're seeing these very large spending announcements, 
They won't talk uh, publicly about how much the new public sector agreement is actually costing us in real tax dollars. Um, you know, the wage percentage is one thing, but there's all the other um, clauses in those agreements that add up to a lot of money uh, that I think the public needs to hear about. Let's remember the last time they did an agreement, it was zero zero and 3, and then we found out that it was actually that equal to 11% uh, to, to the taxpayer. So, um, you know, people have negotiated in good faith. I'm not uh, objecting to that at all. But we need to know what the actual real dollar cost is so that we know how much uh, fiscal room we actually have moving forward. And what do you want the public to keep in mind here today? We'll hear the news about this fiscal update, but what do you want people to know? Well, that the, the fundamentals of what makes a strong economy, um, you know, that government plays a role in. Um, again, just frankly, have not been engaged by this government. So we have an economy that's doing well in spite of government, not because of government right now. So again, if you look at permits, if you look at uh, things going on in our natural resource sectors, if you look at the fact that uh, the major projects like uh, like a Kinder Morgan or, or a Trans Mountain, sorry, or, or the, the Coastal Gas Link, um, you know, those, as those wind up over the next 16, 18 months, there's no other big projects on the books coming in behind them. So there's going to be this huge vacuum of, of those types of things that are integral to our overall provincial economy. Um, you know, coupled with that backlog of, of government inaction, it's going to, uh, you know, have the very real potential here uh, for an incredibly fast slowdown in the economy, unfortunately, at the same time as record spending and record taxation. Listen, thanks so much for your time this morning. Great. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Peter Millibar is BC Liberal MLA and opposition critic for finance. Now, it's important because this morning we are getting a fiscal update from Finance Minister Selena Robinson. That is coming at 9 a.m. We do expect, as Peter Millibar was saying, for there to be money involved here because they have been putting money aside and we've been getting all these big announcements. So the fiscal picture is likely to be a good one for BC, as it has been for Alberta, too. And we've heard about that in the last couple of weeks. But where is that money going to go. What is it set aside for? What can we expect? Keep listening here for the latest on that. This is Mornings with Simi. What causes traffic jams? I mean, you may be sitting in one right now and wondering that very same thing. Maybe it's somebody who slammed on the brakes and the next thing you know, that slowed everybody down. Might be the weather, might be an accident, who knows? But can they be prevented? What if humans didn't have control of the car? What if you let AI do the thinking? Would that help prevent traffic jams? Well, guess what? We're going to talk about that right now. Daniel Work is with us, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Vanderbilt University and an AI researcher. Daniel, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for letting me be here. Yeah, tell me about a bit of your work then. And how does that involve traffic jams? Yeah, everybody is familiar with traffic jams caused by car crashes. Uh, but there's a different type of traffic jam that drivers like you and me also create. These are the jams that you encounter on the roadway. You have no idea why you're stopped, and suddenly you start going again. Those are called phantom traffic jams, and they're due to the way that you and I drive. And our research is focused on changing that by using the types of automated vehicle technologies that are already on cars you can buy at the dealership today. It's basically a smart cruise control. And those smart cruise controls, if we design them in just the right way, they can get rid of these super frustrating stop-go driving traffic jams that you and I create. Okay, so how do we create them? What happens? Yeah, you're driving on the roadway when there's just enough vehicles on the road. One driver makes a mistake. By the time the driver behind realizes what's going on, they have to brake a little bit harder than the car in front of them does. And this continues through the flow of traffic until all of a sudden, at some point, vehicles come to a complete standstill. And then they start driving again. 
So it's really due to the way that you and I drive that creates the stop-go driving that every driver is familiar with, but it's very hard for researchers to actually measure it because of the limited sensing that's been available on roadways until very recently. Okay, so if you use an AI, how does that, how does that work? Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. We're not doing things that humans couldn't already do. It's just easier to teach a computer to do them. So the main name of the game is drive slow and steady. There's no point in driving, racing ahead to sit in traffic. Uh, if you drive at a slower pace, just a little bit slower than the car in front of you who's racing into that jam, you can maintain a smoother speed than the car behind you. We just teach the computers to do that because it's a little bit easier to train the computers than it is those other motorists on the roadway. Okay, so that, but see, I've always wondered this about using AI, like automated vehicles. I feel like it's only going to work if all the vehicles are automated. You can't have half of them automated and half of them not. That's been the precise focus of our research. Uh, Rather than waiting for every car to be completely self-driving, our team has been looking at technologies that are deployed on cars today. And when as few as 5% of the vehicles run these types of technologies, we know that we can not only make our cars more fuel efficient, but also the other vehicles on the roadway by eliminating these stop and go driving jams. Right. So then the cars can talk to each other, right? And moderate their speed accordingly? You got it. If the car ahead can share information that they're stuck in a traffic jam, you can use that to adjust your speed just a little bit to avoid making that traffic jam worse. Right, Daniel, that's so funny, though, because, like, humans won't do that. <laughs> what is it about us psychologically that we just want to race ahead to get to the traffic jam? Hey, I, I've been there, too. I'm not going to say that I've uh, made traffic jams worse, but, hey, I'm a human driver. I make the same mistake. You can't see far enough ahead to be able to uh, dissipate these jams. But there are other motorists on the roadway that already do this. A lot of truck drivers, you know, they can see that their traffic ahead is slow moving. They got a little higher vantage point. They drive at a slow and steady space. Uh, It's good for their fuel efficiency as well as for the cars behind. If enough cars do this in just the right way, everybody's got a smoother commute. Okay, so then how do you adapt this technology? Like you're not going to get everybody to hand over their cars to AI. How do do you teach us to do this? Yeah, the the name of the game is just that. If if you have an adaptive cruise control uh, system on your car, these are the cruise control systems that rather than driving it, a fixed speed no matter what. They can adjust to the speed of the car in front of you, slow down to avoid a crash. We use that same type of technology as the baseline and then just share it a little bit of information about the traffic ahead. And then the AI uses uh, its own logic to make decisions about just how much to slow you down to avoid making that jam worse. Right. So that's that's where we have to learn a little bit of patience, though, don't we, Daniel? Because, yes, if we're going a little bit slower in the end, it's going to be faster, but we have to wrap our head around that. It's weird, but it's true. A, a, a slightly slower pace at a steady speed is better than racing ahead to, just to sit in the jam. Most folks are familiar with this if you're at a traffic signal. The light is going from red to green. There might be a couple cars already at the light in front of you. There's no need to race to the, to the back of the, the queue. You know, the light's green. You know those cars are going to start moving. If you can drive just a little bit slower, you can catch up to those vehicles as they're passing through the intersection. We do the same thing on freeways at scale. And that gets rid of those uh, really frustrating, fuel-inefficient phantom traffic jams. How much can this improve traffic jams by? Like, how much of a difference can this make? It's amazing how effective it can be. The, the, some of our earlier work on a single-lane uh, track demonstrated that we could reduce the amount of fuel consumed by up to 40% with just one car in 20 being automated. Now, obviously, that's not going to carry over to the freeway where you have idiot drivers that cut you off and do all kinds of other things. Right. But we know we can make a positive impact if just a few cars 
are driving in the right way. So we're pretty excited about it, especially recognizing that it doesn't require super sophisticated technology to make it work. It's barely a smarter system than what you can buy on the dealership today. Okay, so then what are you doing with this research? What happens now? Yeah, our, our part of our goal is to get that uh, technology transitioned into the real world. We were really fortunate to have collaborations with uh, Nissan, General Motors, and Toyota. All of their research teams are interested in trying to understand the consequences of these technologies. If, it, if it's deployable and easy to get on cars, you know, that can be something that the next vehicle you buy might be making traffic a little bit better for everybody long before you're it's a completely self-driving vehicle. So that's what we're pushing for and hoping that uh, we can see realized uh, as soon as possible to make everybody's commute a little bit less painful. Do you think this is this is different than obviously a self-driving vehicle? So have we jumped ahead too far, do you think? Like, wait a minute, maybe this is actually the next logical step? Well, that, that's exactly it. I think that the, the world of self-driving requires a huge budget and a long time horizon. And our research is maybe not as well-funded as uh, several of those large tech companies, but we recognize that there are things that can happen with the technologies that are on the cars today. And there's no point in waiting for full self-driving vehicles in order for traffic to get just a little bit better. Okay, but it requires us to give up a little bit of control in our vehicle, doesn't it? You already do that. If you've used cruise control, this is the same kind of idea. A lot of folks find those technologies, uh, you know, obviously you're still in, in control of the vehicle, but makes your drive just a little bit less painful. Um, so, yes, you, you're giving up the ability to speed up and slow down your vehicle when the computer is activating that. But if you want to take over control at any point, you can still use the accelerator. You can still use the brake. Right. So then how would this technology work, though? Because you don't want people to jump in and change the rhythm that you've got going on. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. When it works well, there's no need to, to adjust the speed. If, if the traffic is moving at a steady speed, you have no incentive to drive any faster. And what those controllers are designed to do on these vehicles, when there's just enough vehicles on there, is to keep that speed nice and steady. You get to the destination at the same time as the driver in front of you, just without the racing ahead to slow down. So, Daniel, how did you guys figure this out? Did you actually use, like, real cars on a track somewhere? Yeah, the experiment we just completed here in Nashville, Tennessee, involved 100 vehicles running a basically a 10K loop on I-24, major freeway here in Nashville, Tennessee, 170,000 vehicles per day that pass through there. And our vehicles were basically a drop in the ocean of that traffic, driving just a little bit differently, uh, trying to reduce the severity of the phantom jams that we see pretty frequently on that freeway. Okay, so you took your vehicles and put them in with like regular drivers? Yep, straight from the factory, a bunch of brand new Nissan Rogues. We modified the adaptive cruise control with the computer in the back of the car. It changes the settings of the cruise control while our drivers were on the roadway to make them drive a little bit more efficiently than the vehicles that were piloted entirely by humans. Put those vehicles on the roadway at 6 o'clock in the morning to sit in rush hour traffic with the rest of our motorists on that freeway and then basically deploy these algorithms that are designed to eliminate these phantom traffic jams. And what happened? Well, it's a super exciting uh, day for transportation research. Those vehicles, it's the largest type of deployment of that kind in, in history, uh, we know in the closed course setting that those can have a positive impact. And right now we're looking through terabytes of data that we collected through the experiment to quantify just how much better our traffic uh, jam fighting technologies can make things. We'll have quantitative results soon, but already we can see that there's definitely a positive impact for some of the controllers that we de- deployed. They're, they just You can watch the traffic jam disappear right in front of your eyes. It's pretty remarkable stuff. That's amazing. And Daniel, how often do you get to say pretty exciting day in transportation research history? 
pr- pretty infrequently. Most of the time I'm stuck <laughs> in traffic just like everybody else, wondering why it's still that way. I'll give a word of caution for everybody that's out there. Obviously, we know that we still can't eliminate traffic as long as there's more demand than the roadways can supply. Our focus here is to try to make the traffic just a little bit painful. No need to race ahead just to slam on the brakes in the future. Um, obviously, we're working hard for that. But uh, like we said, there's if there's more demand for supply, you can still expect a sit-in congestion, and there's not really a whole lot that we can do about it. Right, but we can slow down a little bit because it'll work out better. Daniel, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Well, that's a fascinating chat about transportation. That's Daniel Work, professor of civil and environmental engineering at Vanderbilt University and an AI researcher. And they are trying to figure out ways to improve traffic flow using uh, adaptive technology that you already have in your car, which is fascinating. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.